Welcome back, Warriors. My name is Pam Palmiter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, but at the same time, revitalizing our cultures, traditions, practices, and governments. At its heart, my podcast is a celebration of who we are as First Nations people and celebrating the warrior spirits of all of our brothers and sisters who are out there on the ground making a real difference for our families, communities, and nations. Today, we are so lucky to have one of my heroes on this podcast. His name is Russ Diabo. He's a Mohawk everything. He's a Mohawk warrior, uh, intellectual friend, advisor, mentor to so many people. He's got so much knowledge and experience. And for anyone who's listening to this and likes to multitask, you can go to his website at rustdiabo.com and it has a whole huge uh, long biography and background so that you can learn uh, more about him and he has lots of information. Um, so in case you want to follow that uh, as we go along. So thank you, Russ, for being on this podcast. I'm really excited that you're here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's e it's even hard to know where to start with you because uh, it, I'm really hard pressed to find someone with more actual on the ground experience, policy experience. You've worked on both sides, government and First Nations. I mean, you've literally done it all. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about some of your uh, experience and what brought you to where you are today? <clears throat> well, you know, I'm um, when I was a teenager, I, I really started um, wondering about my identity. And um, that led me to you know, start um, going to different uh, events that I saw. One of the first ones I went to uh, was the takeover of the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, offices in Washington, D.C. in uh, 1972. And uh, when I got there, the place had already been pretty much trashed, um, you know, due to a scuffle between the American Indian Movement and, uh, and the police who were trying to get them out of the building. So they... They took everything and <clears throat> barricaded themselves into the building. Um, that's when I really started to uh, talk to people um, also like myself who were looking into their identity. <clears throat> and um, not too long after that, um, the standoff at Wounded Knee, South Dakota in 1973 started. And um, I hitchhiked out there and made my way through without you know, getting caught by the police or anybody. And, so you, um, you were actually there at Wounded Knee? I was for uh, a couple of weeks. Um, oh. I didn't stay for the whole thing because um, mm -hmm. when I was there, I kind of got the sense that, um, because the reason I went there was because uh, the media were cut off. You know, for a while they were letting the media interview people in Wounded Knee. Um, you know, in the American Indian movement, that Russell Maines and Dennis Banks and other spokespeople. And um, then they cut it off. And then they were just giving scattered reports on national news about what was happening out there. So I went out there to see for myself what was going on. Um, and like I said, I was only 17. Wow. So, you know, basically I dropped out of high school. Um, I've been on my own since I was 15. So I started pretty young. And... Um, when I was out there, 
I like I said, I made it in with the help of some local um, uh, Sioux people who brought us in at night where we had to kind of sneak around the armored personnel carriers and, you know, the, um, the U.S. Marshals on horseback and stuff. And um, because they knew the terrain, they knew how to uh, get into Wounded Knee without being seen. So they had routes that they would take all kinds of people. When I went in, there was a bunch of people. We were waiting in a barn that belonged to one of the Sioux uh, people there. And when it got dark, they then took us out on a, I don't know, five, six mile hike um, below the hills, because it's very hilly there, um, to Wounded Knee. And when I got in, um, you know, I got to see uh, what was going on. I stayed in that church, uh, that iconic church that was uh, seen in many, many films and photographs. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, they told me to go into a bunker nearby there and, you know, basically just sit throughout the day in case anything happened. And um, at night they would come and um, Russell Means and Dennis Banks would come and They'd have like a community meeting in the, in a building there and they'd give an update on the negotiations with the federal government. And when I was there, there was, had to be about 300 people, I think, there at the time. But there was always people coming and going. And, um, you know, I was there for about a week. And then I decided I'd seen enough and I wasn't uh, I wasn't sure where the whole conflict was going to go. Um, but there was a young um Sue guy that was my age, 17, asked me, he says, I'm going back home. You want to you want to go out with me? And I said, sure. So we hiked, uh, I think, about eight miles at night, just him and I, because he knew the area, uh, to Porcupine, South Dakota. And that's where I stayed with his family in a trailer um, for a week. And they wouldn't let me out <clears throat> because um, during the day, I could only go out at night because they didn't want any neighbors seeing you know, a stranger from the outside there mm-hmm. because they had uh, <clears throat> Dick Wilson's goons, they called them, the tribal uh, police who were under the, you know, Dick Wilson, the uh, president of the, you know, um, Pine Ridge Reservation. And um, he was a pretty bad dude. <clears throat> That's what led to the wounded knee standoff in the first place. Anyway, um, so after about a week, they were able to get me a ride off the, uh, the reservation. And then I, um, I took a bus back uh, east where I was living. So I was there uh, and had the uh, the experience inside for about a week and then about a week outside on the reservation, but basically in hiding. <clears throat> it's probably about the closest to, you know, Vietnam experience that I had because they were shooting 50 caliber machine guns into Wounded Knee at times there were firefights. <clears throat> and at night you'd see every fifth bullet was a tracer. So you'd see all these red lights. In, you know, a line just coming <clears throat> towards the uh, the village. And one time I was walking back to the church from the after a community meeting there, and I was with this uh, guy called Angel from Alaska. He's a former Vietnam uh, veteran because they were, <clears throat> excuse me, heavily involved in, uh, you know, defending the, the perimeter of the wounded knee at the different, um, um, uh, what do you call them? <laughs> Checkpoints, I guess. Checkpoints, yeah. And um, and then a flare went up, and we were in the middle of a big open field. And then he said, you know, hit the ground and keep your face down. He says, because the snipers use that uh, 
light from the flares uh, to shoot at you. So of course I had no experience uh, like that at all. So I just did everything that he said. I was eating dirt there. And then um, a firefight started, you know, and we had to wait until that flare went out before we could get up and hightail it up to that church. So that that's, that's incredible. I mean, this is, this is the kind of, you know, inside information that so many people don't know for, I mean, most Canadians I'm sure haven't even heard of wounded knee, but even those that have don't realize just how warlike it was. It wasn't just, you know, some one day incident in a place where there was a bit of a conflict or a protest. This, this really was a battle. I mean, when you're bringing out 50 caliber weapons and snipers and there's ongoing shooting and you have to travel at night, that's, that's that's war. Yeah, it was pretty intense. Um, you know, Richard Nixon had just been reelected as president, but he was having his own battles. <clears throat> so they were a little distracted, the, the administration. But um, <clears throat> at first, the armored personnel carriers, which had the 50 caliber machine guns mounted on them, were further away. But after mm -hmm. I left, <clears throat> they moved the, the circle in closer. And the bullets started to go through buildings, and um, it shot. Uh, I think it was Buddy Lamont was sleeping in that church I was talking about. The, the bullet went through the um, the wall and hit him and killed him. So you know, it became much more dangerous then as the the range of the bullets started to become more real when they kept closing the circle. And um, there was another person that died. I can't recall uh, who that was. So there were a couple of people on the. Um, the Indian side who uh, who were killed. Well, that's incredible. I mean, for someone who was setting out to, you know, get a sense of what their identity is, and you end up in the middle of what is essentially a war between <clears throat> settler governments and native people, that had to have had a profound impact on your identity. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, that's what forced me to go back to, uh, I was a high school dropout, so that's what forced me to go back to... Uh, the school and then uh, <clears throat> that's when I started um, taking uh, Indian studies in different places like I went to Manitou College which was an Indian controlled college in Quebec. It doesn't exist anymore but <clears throat> uh, and after Wounded Knee I went there in 1975 and uh, from there I went to Navajo Community College on the Navajo Reservation and then to uh, the University of California at Berkeley I took Native American studies and um, and then from there, um, I went back to the Navajo Community College and started working there in the museum with uh, Harry Walters. He was the curator, a Navajo there that uh, taught me about museology. Hmm. And uh, from there, I learned I became museum development director in Ganawage for a short period of time at the Cultural Center. But I went back to university at Trent in Native Studies. Um, and I finally graduated with a BA at a Laurentian University Native Studies and went to school in Tucson in 1983-84 um, to study under Vine Deloria Jr. and, and other professors. Um, he was a famous um, American Indian uh, author um, and intellectual thinker. So you, act you actually got to study under Vine Deloria Jr.? Yes, I did. Because, I mean, for, you know, for any of us who does, you know, do a lot of reading and, 
you know, what are Native people saying? What are Native scholars and activists? I mean, clearly the artificial border doesn't stop us in terms of, you know, looking at who has been foundational. And, and, and of course, he has been foundational. What, what was it like studying under him? <laughs> well, he was a tough teacher. Um, <laughs> I mean, um, and he was a Republican. A lot of people don't know that about him, but he was a Republican. Hmm. And he um, he had a poster in his office uh, that had these mafia gangster looking guys that said, if, um, I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. <laughs> so he was uh, he was kind of like that. You know, um, I took a water rights course from him and um, it was like taking a law class, even though it was in the political science program. And um, at a master's degree level, you know, graduate level, and um, he would always reference the case law with different Hollywood movies that were occurring at that time, you know, about the Homestead Act, uh, the wagon trains going across the West and all that. He, he referred to these movies that would talk to that historical period. But he taught me as a lawyer about legal fictions, um, because I'm not a lawyer, I'm a policy mm -hmm. person. He felt it was important he was trying to create an American Indian policy specialist. So that was the purpose of getting a master's degree in that program, uh, to be um, interdisciplinary. But he thought it was really important to be able to understand the law. And a lot of the students who graduated from that program, I didn't because I came back to Canada. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them that did went on to law school after that, uh, became lawyers. But... Um, you know, he was encouraging problem solving and thinking from an interdisciplinary point of view of the contemporary issues facing the, the Native American tribes in the States. And of course, there were a number of us from Canada that were going to school there too, to learn about American Indian policy. So we can, I guess, compare and contrast what has gone on in Canada compared to the United States, because we're so close, right? We're part of the same Turtle Island. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you, you can clearly tell the impact, you know, that he and others have had on you because, you know, for people who don't know you very well, I, I mean, I've heard lots of people say, oh, Russ, you mean the lawyer, the native lawyer? There are lots of people um, who I have come across that think that you're a lawyer because you are so multidisciplinary. You talk about the law as much as you talk about policy and the social context and the political context. I mean, you really put it all together. And I think that's, that's incredibly important for us because we, I, really I, I think that's the methodology I learned from him, <clears throat> you know, that he was teaching us as students was yeah. to look at the bigger picture that way and see to have the different, um, different aspects are connected to, to the problems we're facing. So, I mean, there's a, there's a, um, I mean, that's, it's so important to have that multi-dimensional aspect, you know, to your thinking and analysis, but also you as a person are multi-dimensional because not only do you have this, you know, incredible, you know, on the ground experience uh, when you were younger, you have all of the, you know, core native education, but then you also have, you know, the, you know, political experience and, you know, professional work experience inside and outside of government. I mean, that's that has to really, you know, inform how you see things. Can you just share a little bit about, you know, where you've been in terms of your actual political and work experience? Well, when I went to Ottawa the first time, it was in 1981, and I went to work at the National Indian Brotherhood, which is the um, 
you know, the precursor to the Assembly of First Nations. Mm-hmm. It had been set up in the 1970s. And um, in the National Union Brotherhood, they had a section called the Parliamentary Liaison Unit. And so I worked there as a summer student under the direction of Michael Poslins, who co-authored uh, the book, um, The Fourth World with George Manuel. He worked closely with George Manuel. But he also worked with Noel Sarblanket when Noel was president of you know, the National Union Brotherhood in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And it was Mickey that, that got them to agree to create the parliamentary liaison unit to keep an eye on parliament and assist with chiefs outside of town coming into Ottawa to help them with lobbying. But one of the tasks I had was to help keep a report card on each member of parliament, each senator on how they were voting on status Indian issues. And um, I was there in, uh, like I said, in 1981, and that's the year that they really started um, on the new constitution, you know, Pierre Trudeau. Um, the prime minister. But that's also the same year that the uh, Sûreté de Québec uh, raided uh, Listigouche uh, in, in oh, basically right. what they call the fish war. Yep. So the whole National Brotherhood executive was meeting out west and chartered a plane to Listigouche to go and uh, support them. Um, but even before I went to work at the National Brotherhood in 1980, when I was a student at Trent uh, Native Studies, um, I came to Ottawa to what was called the Skyline Hotel. It's now the Delta um, to uh, National Union Brotherhood Chiefs meeting. And um, when I was there, Trudeau came. And Trudeau said to the chiefs, Pierre Trudeau, mm-hmm. uh, said uh, that he wanted the chiefs to treat Canada better than Canada had treated them. And that's when he announced he was going to patriate Canada's constitution from England. So when I went to work at the National Union Brotherhood in 1981, they started, uh, there were groups who were opposed to it. There were groups who wanted to see Aboriginal treaty rights included in the new constitution. And, the, you know, among the ones who wanted to see it in there were, were groups, um, well, from across the country. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's where I think it was. I think it was in 1980 as well when Trudeau announced that 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 George Manuel organized what was called the Constitution Express, a train that left Vancouver with grassroots people on it, picking up um, you know uh, people right across the country. They had kind of two trains that separated, one going across Northern Prairies, I think it was, and one Southern, and then they met up, I think, in Sudbury or something. They joined the trains together. So they came into um, to Ottawa, and um, the Ottawa mayor, um, Marion Dewar, I think her name was. Uh, she she had encouraged people from Ottawa to billet everybody. You know, to really? Say yeah, that's Paul Dewar's um, mother. Um, oh wow! The NDP uh, MP uh, from Ottawa Centre. That's uh, well, he's got some serious health problems, um, mm-hmm. but his mother was very supportive. And um, when the Constitution Express arrived in Ottawa, they were really meeting with, well, they had a meeting with Trudeau and others to put pressure on because at that time they removed Section 35, what was to become Section 35, the recognition of Aboriginal treaty rights. So the idea was to get Canadians and, you know, uh, Aboriginal people across Canada to put pressure on Trudeau to put it back in because... um, you know, the previous version said uh, 
the Aboriginal treaty rights of Aboriginal peoples are hereby recognized and affirmed. And it was um, the premiers of Saskatchewan and Alberta who wanted that section removed. Um, Blake, Blakeney and uh, Lougheed premiers. Hmm. And um, Jean Chrétien was the justice minister at the time. So, you know, in the horse trading, <laughs> they agreed to do that. <clears throat> Chrétien later on went to say that he knew there would be pressure on them to put it back in, but he just wanted the, the pressure to be on the provinces, not the federal government. Whatever, when they put it back in, they added the word existing to, to limit future interpretations of it. They said, Section 35 reads that the existing Aboriginal treaty rights of Aboriginal peoples are hereby recognized and affirmed. So, you know, they were trying to limit the impact of that uh, provision. Mm -hmm. And also in that uh, provision, um, there was Section 37, which said that the Prime Minister had to call... Uh, first minister's meeting or conference on Aboriginal matters within one year after the new constitution became law. So the Constitution Act 1982 became law on April 17th, 1982. And they had a first minister's conference on Aboriginal matters in 1983. And um, First Nations were split. There was a coalition of First Nations that were against that. And there were people inside at the table, you know, wanting to negotiate with the provinces, the premiers and the prime minister. Um, but prior to that, when the constitution was being patriated in 1981, when I worked at the National Indian Brotherhood, they formed a British, uh, they formed um, a lobbying office in England, London, to lobby. The, the NIB did? The Na National Indian yeah. Brotherhood. Well, yeah. the National Indian Brotherhood helped set it up, but it was set up for the regional uh, First Nations representatives to go to. So a lot of the, the treaty chiefs from the prairies went there. Uh, the Union of East Indian Chiefs, they even had a court case trying to block um, the passage of what was called the Canada Bill in, uh, in the British Parliament. And I think it was Justice Denning mm -hmm. that wound up ruling that um, it was legal for Canada to patriate the Constitution but they also had to respect uh, the treaties and obligations to, you know, First Nations or Indians, as they called them, as long as the sun shines and the grass grows. So he used some of the treaty language in his uh, in his uh, judgment. So, you know, that wasn't resolved. Um, and so there was a split when the Constitution was brought back to Canada amongst First Nations. And so in 1983, there were people protesting outside of the uh, you know, the building where the constitutional talks are being held and people inside participating in it. And um, Quebec, of course, never agreed. So René Levesque um, gave his seat up for um, some of the uh, women who are bringing up the, the uh, gender inequality issue. Mary Two Acts Early, for example. Um, right. I think sh um, Sharon... Um, uh, from New Brunswick there. She's a senator now. Oh, Love Sandra Lovelace-Nicholas. Sandra Lovelace-Nicholas, yes. Yeah. And um, and Billy Two Rivers from Gunawage, because Gunawage was part of the coalition against that constitution at the time. And where, uh, where where were you in all of this? Like, where did you land? Were you with the supporters I, or the detractors? Well, I was an observer at that point. Um, okay. And I managed to get into the building where the 
first ministers conference was being held um the old railway in ottawa on the canal um right across from the weston hotel that's where the constitutional talks were held in there and i managed to get in with media credentials and so oh. i was sitting in an observer gallery there watching um everything unfold inside the room and um shortly after that's when i went to school in tucson uh, at the university of arizona uh, to study with Vine Deloria and others and uh, that's the reason why I came back in 1984 I didn't complete the program in Tucson mm -hmm. I was interested in what was going on in uh, Canada with these uh, constitutional talks so I came back to work for the Assembly of First Nations uh, at what was called the Bilateral Commission and the Bilateral Commission was set up with an AFN uh, made up of those chiefs who had gone to court and who were fighting um, the Constitution, the provinces being involved in, in Indian policy. And so they set up a unit within um, the Assembly of First Nations when David Henneke was national chief. And um, I was special projects coordinator to assist uh, as directed on um, um, basically the, the First Nations federal relationship looking right. at machinery of government issues right um, about the original relationship from the two-row wampum to the covenant chain to the early pre-confederation treaties right across to the the number treaties that bilateral relationship so that that was they used to say within afn there was group a and group b and group a was always the group of uh, what they had in the multilateral talks they had a constitutional working group made up of many people um mostly who, who were you know negotiating comprehensive claims were in that group um george erasmus was kind of the unofficial leader of that i think mm. he was chair or yep. something. and um in the bilateral director bobby Manuel, arthur's older brother was uh, i think he was the uh, one of the chairs of the bilateral commission so I was working under him, and while I was working at the, the Assembly of First Nations in 1983-84 with Bobby, that's when I first met Art Manuel, and um, you know became friends with Art. But uh, it was during the constitutional talks. Um, so. So what was Art? What was Art doing at the time? Like when you met him, you know, you were in that role. What was he doing? Well, basically, he was observing the discussions and uh, okay. writing about them. Um, I don't know what he was doing in BC. He might have been mm -hmm. working for his band or the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. I think he might have been working for them. I'm not sure. Um, you know, I didn't. Uh, I didn't know him that well at first, and I was focused on what I was doing. Um, you know, under Bobby Manuel's uh, leadership, and one of the issues they had me working on was the extinguishment issue in the conference of claims policy and get that removed right and um so you know in 1985 there was an election at afn and george erasmus uh, got elected in and uh that's when i returned to school because i supported a hennecke over erasmus oh and, okay and i didn't really want to have anything to do with george because you know personally i didn't trust him and um you know, he wound up working closely with the Conservatives. When he got in as National Chief, he let an RCMP guy come in uh, 
Well, they got approval from the Confederacy structure at AFN, but they let an RCMP guy have an office there to do an investigation into um, Dave Henneke, and it was part of this conservative liberal fight about looking into uh, that federal money had been used in the leadership bid of John Monroe, the Minister of Indian Affairs, back in 1984. And so there was this big investigation, and these guys were dragged to court, and in the end, uh, David Hennecke, Saul Sanderson, and others, um, I think they probably spent over a million dollars defending themselves. Um, but the judge dismissed the charges at the end, saying there was no evidence, you know, of the accusations. But the RSMP officer, uh, I remember they used to call him Inspector Gadget. Uh, that was his nickname. I think it was Sergeant Kennedy was his real name. Uh, he had access to all the FN files under George Erasmus. So I've never, oh, wow. uh, I've never trusted George uh, since then. Well, even before then. But that just reaffirmed uh, my feelings about him. Because I didn't think it was right having RCMP going through, having total open access to all the AFN files. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, so, uh, it was all for nothing because they had to drop the charges. And, and the same with John Monroe. You know, they wound up um, not charging him either. It was just, you know, Brian Maroney and party politics going after the liberals, right? But so much damage is done. You know, even once charges are dropped, it's just the allegations that hurt yeah. people's reputations. Yep, and I understand that, you know, brown envelopes, every time these guys try to get jobs, brown envelopes will be slipped under yeah. doors. Brian, so if, getting work. If, if you're like so in it and you're, you know, at the NIB and then it turns into the AFN and you're all on these, you know, big files, you're, you know, I mean, you're there with everything happening. How do you go from that to working with the federal government later on? I never did work for the federal government. Oh. The, the closest I got to, um, I guess, working with the federal government is when I basically agreed after Maroney, seeing how the constitutional talks ended in the 80s. Yeah. And Meech Lake, um, you know, in 87, the Meech Lake Accord, you know, to, um, to recognize Quebec's distinct society status. You know, my home is, is based in Quebec. So, you know, I, I was very aware of what was going on with those talks mm -hmm. about how that would impact on First Nations in Quebec. Oh. Um, and so I was taught, I basically, I was recruited by Dave Nawagabo, an Ojibwe lawyer, to become part of, um, um, you know, the Aboriginal um, presence in the Liberal Party in, in the late 1980s. And his argument to me was, well, Russ, you always complain about the government not knowing what they're doing. Now's your chance to work with a party before they become the government and try and shape their platform, you know, based on my policy experience. So he convinced me. I was skeptical. I said, well, it'll be an experiment. I remember telling him that because I, I wasn't in it, you know, 100 percent. But I figured I'd give it a try because it hadn't been really done before the Previous involvement of Aboriginal involvement in the, the um, you know, the white political parties. Um, yeah. It was always really tokenism, you know. And I didn't want to go in to be a token for anybody. Right. Um, so we worked on um, Dave and others. I think Mark Leclerc was uh, on uh, involved as well. He's a Métis lawyer from Saskatchewan. Uh, 
they were involved dealing with the mechanics of amending the Liberal Party, proposing amendments to the Liberal Party of Canada's constitution. So oh. it was in 1990, well, they already had a women's commission and a youth commission in the Liberal Party of Canada. So basically, they just create, patterned a new co creation of an Aboriginal People's Commission along the same lines as the Women and Youth Commission within the party to have um, representation at all levels, including the national executive, mm -hmm. which is the main part of the party wing, uh, which includes the leader of the party and stuff on it. Right? And uh, so it was in 1990, there were, in Calgary, there was um, a leadership convention. And uh, we, Dave Nawagabo and others were able to convince the candidates running in that leadership convention that, um, you know, people associated with the proposed Aboriginal Commission, because it wasn't legal until the party amended its constitution, um, would get status, they would get delegate status if the uh, party amended its constitution at the Calgary Leadership Convention. So okay. We, we had contingent delegate status. It was conditional on them amending the constitution. So we couldn't participate in choosing the leader unless we got full delegate status, which required party to uh, amend its constitution, you know, along the lines of, you know, creating an Aboriginal People's Commission, the same as the Women and Youth Commission. Right. But, but prior to that, during the negotiations, there were lawyers within the Liberal Party that, that said, Normally, you have to wait six months for that to, to come into effect, and, and they quit over that issue. They didn't agree with, you know, getting, moving from contingent status to full status right at the convention. In any case, the candidates agreed, so people within the party supporting the candidates agreed with that. So, you know, um, there were thousands of people at that convention, and so they all got to vote on amending the Constitution, and of course they supported it, right? I right. always found that the rank-and-file Canadians are supportive of our issues. It's mm -hmm. the establishment or the party brass that we have problems with. And uh, anyway, they, you know, it was basically the main contenders were Paul Martin versus Jean Chrétien at that convention, and for Jean Chrétien won, and I'd always, you know, when university, Native Studies and everything, I always learned about the white paper and Kretchen and mm -hmm. his role in terminating us. And uh, so I was of two minds about remaining there, but, you know, um, I was there and I was part of the founding executive members because we had our first uh, official meeting of the Aboriginal People's Commission there in Calgary and we had a, a vote of the Aboriginal delegates and um, I was voted in as uh, vice president of policy for the Aboriginal People's Commission of the Liberal Party of Canada at that meeting. And I held that position from 1990 to 1994. So I was involved as a Liberal insider during that period. You, um, must, you must have been at least somewhat hopeful that there, you know, that that was a sign of change, that maybe, you know, your involvement and other Native people's involvement in that kind of Liberal Aboriginal platform or policy development would bring about some change? Well, that was the first political party in Canada that created such a structure within its party. You know, the others kind of had a loose Aboriginal caucus, you know, the Conservatives. and the, mm -hmm. They never really had it uh, built into their structure that there was, uh, you know, Aboriginal representation throughout the party structure. 
that was the first party that did it, the Liberals. And, um, you know, that that's what I was there for, was to advocate, not to seek contracts or anything, you know? Right. Uh, it wasn't out of self-interest. It was because um, I wanted to see reform to policy. Of course. That's why I got involved. Uh, and that's how Dave lured me in. <laughs> I'd get the opportunity to do that if I if I came along. Yeah. So um, I guess during that conventions when Elijah Harper ran the clock out of Meech Lake, people were coming up to me thinking I was Elijah Harper. Um, hmm. And of course, Clyde Wells was the guy that everybody championed as the hero because you know he didn't agree with it either. Yeah, and from Newfoundland. Yeah, when he showed up, um, he was the premier in Newfoundland, and when he showed up, uh, you got to be heroes welcome, and they had to have, like, securities linking arms to keep him in the middle to protect him from the swarm of people that wanted to, uh, to touch him and shake his hand and talk to him and everything. And uh, so he got the credit for killing Meech Lake when really it was Elijah Harper. Yeah. And all he was doing was calling Manitoba to see if they were going to pass it, because once they didn't pass it, he knew Newfoundland didn't have to deal with it. But he's the one that, you know, everybody focused on in, in the media and across Canada as being the one who stopped Meech Lake. And he got the credit for that, not Elijah. Anyway, um, that happened. And I, it was just a few weeks later because the convention was in uh, June of 1990. And then in July 11th, 1990 is when the shootout at Oka happened in Gunasadage. And that, that, of course, led to that 78-day standoff. Um, you know, which a lot of people call Indian Summer, mm-hmm. and uh, which Mohawks call the Gulf War, because it was over a golf course, right? Oh. <laughs> anyway, yeah. anyway, um, so when that crisis started to happen in Quebec, Audrey McLaughlin showed up, the NDP uh, leader, and I yeah. was calling around to Dave and others saying, well, where's Gretchen? He should be here. Um, and somebody found him at his cottage and convinced him to come. Um, the Quebec chiefs are having an emergency meeting in Gunawagi. And by that time, of course, the Mercier Bridge was blocked. And the only way you could get in was uh, by boat. And of course, Gunawagi has a marina and lots of people with boats that go across. So they were bringing people from Lachine the town, uh, the city of Lachine across the St. Lawrence River to uh, the Ganawagi Marina. And so I was sent in a, like a cabin cruiser. I don't know who owned it, but I was sent across to go and meet Kretchen and brief him on uh, the situation at Gunasadagi. So, you know, we picked him up and going across and I was telling him about, you know, their specific claim to land, you know, that where the burial site was, and all this other stuff that, you know, they'd been fighting for for decades, actually over a hundred and some years. And uh, while I was talking to him about it, I realized, well, he must know better than me because he was the Minister of Indian Affairs that rejected their claims in you know, the early 1970s. But in any case, you know, he listened to what I had to say and uh, we got over to the dock at the marina and they picked us up in a van and took us to the building where the Quebec chiefs were meeting. Mm-hmm. And he announced, uh, that he was going to go over to, to Gunasadagi to see the people in the pines, you know, because at that point negotiations had broken down. John Chiacha, who used to be Kretchen's special assistant when he was Minister of Indian Affairs, uh, he was the Aboriginal Affairs Minister at Quebec. Um, 
you know, in 1990. Right. So, so Chen knew him personally. Anyway, uh, the talks had broken down. So Chen said he was going to go talk to the warriors in the pines. And um, so we got in a, a boat. He had Ethel Blondin with him. She's a Dene, uh, she was a Dene member of parliament, uh, liberal from the Northwest Territories. She was with him. So they both got on a boat because it was a different boat this time. It wasn't a cabin cruiser, and they went across the St. Lawrence River. And while they were crossing the river, it, it rained on them, you know, because there was kind of like partial storms kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, Dave Nawagabo and I got on another boat about 10 minutes after them, and we went across and met them at the uh, Sheen uh, docks. And they were wringing their clothes out because they were wet, but we didn't get rained on because, you know, the cloud had passed by the time we went across. <laughs> Anyway, we went in a caravan to um, to Oka, and the SQ, of course, had a massive uh, blockade of their own there, and they were blocking, you know, anybody from going in. So they had Chen sit there for two hours, and then he sent a message saying, tell them I'm leaving. And they came back and said, oh, we, we said uh, these people could go in. And there were people from Ganawawi that followed us over who wanted to go to Oka, so they were kind of filtering out all the you know, the people that were mm -hmm. following us. So they agreed to, to a number of us to go in, and it was uh, Kretchen, his driver, um, Ethel, Dave, myself, I think a couple of others. So it's about 10 o'clock at night at that point, so we're walking up that highway, and um, a lot of the images people would see is that highway with the overturned SQ cars as a barricade and stuff at the top of the hill. Yep. So we were walking up towards that, and as we got closer to where the, the barricade was, all these warriors with masks and guns were coming up saying, hi, Russ. Hi, Russ. Hi, Russ. <laughs> and Craig uh, Jan kind of looked at me like, what did you get me into kind of thing? <laughs> but meanwhile, it was his idea to go there, not mine. And um, I remember him standing in the pines, um, and they had a 100-gallon drum there with a smudge because the mosquitoes were, were massive there. And he was standing there in his suit and in kind of the uh, the glow of the smudge, uh, you know, in that drum, the kind of a fire there. And uh, he was telling them, uh, if I was prime minister, this wouldn't be happening. And, of course, people were sitting in, um, you know, outdoor chairs uh, all around in a circle there in the pines listening to him. And I kind of, you know, went and stood back at the, the end of the circle to kind of watch him from a distance and see how the people were reacting. And um, basically he said, because he knew Chiacha, John Chiacha, he could, if they wanted him to, he could ask him to start negotiations again. So they agreed. So we left there and he did get the negotiations started again, but of course they broke down. And well, we know the, the story of what happened through 1990. Yeah. yeah. And that's when Moroni in September of 1990 announced this um, four, pil four pillars to aboriginal policy and that's when he announced the creation of you know what became the royal commission on aboriginal peoples and, and accelerating native claims and you know he had uh, kind of four four areas he focused on but it took you know the oka crisis to to get his government to move and that of course led to um the charlottetown accord negotiations where he 
basically included the distinct society idea and uh, recognition of the inherent right to self-government and elected Senate, you know, basically the mishmash of issues that the premiers and, and Aboriginal peoples wanted, he, he put it together into a constitutional amendment package. And um, of course they had a national referendum in Canada on it and the package failed. Mm-hmm. And um that set the stage for the federal election, which was coming up in 1993. And that's when our Aboriginal People's Commission got involved. And we had to fight the Liberal Party uh, establishment to have Aboriginal issues included in the platform. Uh, really? Haviva, yeah, Haviva Hosak was the uh, chair of the uh, Liberal Research Bureau, and she was the co-chair of the campaign committee along with Paul Martin. And she said, well, if we um, include Aboriginal issues in the platform, next thing you know, we have to include Italian issues, you know, Ukrainian issues. And, uh, and we said, wait a minute, they don't have constitutional recognition. We do. Exactly. So they had to back down and agree that there would be an Aboriginal part of the platform. And we had to negotiate with people like Eddie Goldenberg, who Kretchen sent in to kind of fight us. Because he always tried to keep his hands clean, right? So he'd have other people work for him. So he had to deal with, you know, Aviva Hosack and Eddie Goldenberg and other party brass who were charged with developing the platform. So we wound up with a short platform, which became Chapter 7 in the Red Book. And um, a longer platform that we fought for that Chen announced on the campaign trail in October of uh, 1993 at Wenisquewin there, that cultural... Heritage Center in Saskatchewan. And, um, you know, we we had done a process of including people. We held policy forums that were open to anybody to give input into the platform that our commission was working on. And it was Dave Nawagabo and I that had kind of the lead roles. He was co-chair of the Aboriginal People's Commission and I as policy uh, vice president. Other people were involved too, but we, we kind of, had the job of kind of shepherding it through the process. Mm-hmm. And um, like I said, it was open to the Aboriginal organizations, to Aboriginal people. We held a national policy forum. You didn't have to be a liberal. You know, it was open to everybody. And everybody we heard once it was released, everybody said it's a good platform. Um, unfortunately, once the liberals won a majority in 1993, <sighs> Chen named um, Ron Irwin as Minister of Indian Affairs, and Dave and I said, well, who the hell is this guy? Well, I think that's an appropriately suspenseful place to leave this podcast for now, and we'll continue with part two of our interview with Russ Diabo in our next podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening to The Warrior Life. I hope that you'll like this episode, share it with your friends, and leave your feedback in the comment section. If you're new here, please consider subscribing to this podcast as we have lots of great interviews lined up for 2019. If you want to know more about Russ's background and his advocacy work, you can check him out on russdiabo.com. And for more information in general on Indigenous issues, you can check out my website, which is pampalmeter.com. Until next time.